These lectures are based on the scripture series, The Bible and the Church Fathers, prepared by the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. For more information on the St. Paul Center, you can go to their website at www.salvationhistory.com. I dedicate this series to Deacon Vincent Trainer, who passed suddenly last December. Vince was a regular participant in these scripture studies and often told me this one on the Church Fathers is the one he was particularly looking forward to attending. I like to think of Vince as now getting to know the Church Fathers firsthand in heaven. And now, the Bible and the Church Fathers, Lesson 4, The Fathers of the Church. So, let's begin with the Holy Spirit prayer. And then the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faith. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created. And ye shall renew the face of the earth. O God, by the light of the Holy Spirit, instructs the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. A couple things that came up last week. We talked about the canon of Scripture and how we have different books. So here's a chart that I think somewhat simplifies it, but we're only looking at the Old Testament, right? Because all Christian denominations have the same New Testament, 27 books. The Old Testament is where we differ. The Old Testament is generally broken down into three categories, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law would be like the first five books, Pentateuch. The prophets would be, you know, Ezekiel, all all the books that have prophets' names on it. And the writings are like what they call wisdom books. So they have, they have 39 books in the Protestant canon. Catholics have seven additional books and additions to two more books. Now the Orthodox Church, which is theologically identical to the Catholic Church, but they don't accept the Pope, they have some additional books. In addition to all these, they have four additional books. And then there's a Coptic rite they put one more book in. This canon was based on the Septuagint, which was the uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible back before the time of Jesus. The original church, since they were mostly Greek-speaking, once they got out of Jerusalem, used the Greek Septuagint. So that's that's where these came from. And and this was accepted until the Protestant Reformation with Luther. But again, you'll you'll see these in, in a lot of Protestant Bibles, but as an appendix. So it's not that they're not good, they just don't give it the status that we did. We said, yeah, that's part of the canon. The other thing was, we, we said that Christ brought us into full communion with God, something that the, the Old Covenant couldn't do for the Jewish people. There was some question about, well, what does that mean? You know, how are they, what, we're in full communion, what is, that, what is the status of the Jewish people? So, in some general terms, the Jews maintained their relationship with God through observance of the law. Right, the law was important. You become holy by observing law obedience. The problem was they could never do that perfectly because there was never a way to make a perfect offering until Jesus came. With the coming of Jesus, the difference is that our relationship with God, one way to think of it is we, through Jesus, now are part of the body of Christ. Right? It's a much more intimate relationship. So Paul says you are now Christ's body and individually, individually members of it. So we're part of Christ's body, and that happens when we're baptized. That's our faith. We're baptized and become part of the body of Christ. 
this new relationship with God is something that the Catechism calls our divinization. It doesn't mean we're God, but we share in God's nature. So in some mysterious sense, we become divinized through our baptism. And if you want to read more into that, you can, I think it, you can look it up in the index in the Catechism, and it will give you the different sections in the Catechism where they use that term. And this relationship is maintained through our Eucharist. Eucharist is the critical to our faith, right? And Paul says in the same letter, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. So it's maintained, our relationship, the covenant is maintained through the Eucharist. So through Christ, we have the fullness of communion with God in two senses. One is with the coming of Jesus, this covenant with God is open to everybody. With the Jewish people, they were selected to be in a special relationship with God. Now, it's full in the sense that everybody is invited. And, and in the other sense, this relationship is very intimate. And I use the term, we're part of the body of Christ to describe what that, what that fullness of, of relationship is. And, of course, to maintain this, we need a, we need a priesthood. And I'm, we'll talk about the priesthood today. All right, so this is lecture four. Last week you saw how the New Testament originally in the early church did not refer to a book, but it referred to a sacrament, referred to the Eucharist. That was kind of the bottom line of the whole lecture last week. The New Testament was understood as the New Covenant, as the Eucharist. And it was through the Eucharist that, that Jesus initiated this New Covenant, enabling all humanity to be sons and daughters in the family of God. So we're going to start this by taking a look at this family today. In addition to Catholics and Orthodox, uh, recent estimates project that, that there are now over 40,000 different Protestant denominations. It's obvious that this can't be what God intended, that he would have sent his son to suffer and die so that his followers would believe all sorts of different things about him and belong to all different churches. And Jesus himself is pretty clear that this is not what he intended. So we're going to have a reading from John 17, 20-24 about this idea of unity. And not to them only do I pray, but to them also who through their words shall believe in me, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them that they may be one, as we also are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast also loved me. Father, I will, I will that where I am, and they also, whom thou hast given me, may be with me, that they may see my glory, which thou hast given me, because thou hast loved me before the creation of the world. So we praise that all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us. He wants the same unity in his church that exists in the Trinity. So just as God is one, we are all to be one with him and one with each other to be the body of Christ, as Paul says in Romans and in Corinthians. And how is this unity supposed to come about? Obviously, not through a book, because all the denominations have the same New Testament books that we have. Christ never commanded to write this down, to pass it down to others, but what he did is he commanded them, do this in memory of me. 
At the Last Supper, Christ did not make the apostles authors. He made them doers. He made them priests. When he said, do this in memory of me, we understand that as when he authorized them to the priesthood. Do this. Celebrate the Eucharist. Celebrate the sacraments. So Christ prepared them to follow in his footsteps and carry on his mission to unite the world in him through the sacraments. That was the mission Christ gave them. And we're going to have a reading from Matthew 28, 18-20. Jesus came forward and addressed them in these words. Full authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to carry out everything I have commanded you, and know that I am with you always until the end of the world. See, he was promising to remain with them and with us through the preaching of the gospel and the actualization of the gospel in the sacraments, especially the Eucharist. And that's exactly what happened. Mark's gospel tells us that after the ascension of Christ, the apostles went forth and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that attended it. In doing that, they were carrying out Christ's instructions that we just read. They baptized people, incorporating them into the family of God through the sacraments. In order for this work to continue, they ordained priests to continue to celebrate the sacraments. For example, we know from early church histories that the first thing that St. Jude did when he arrived in the Syrian city of Edessa was to ordain priests and teach them how to celebrate the sacraments. So the continuation of the celebration of the sacraments was the primary mission of the apostles and their successors. And this happened quickly, this passing of the word. By 155, Justin Mortar was able to say, there is not one single race of men, whether barbarians or Greeks, or of whatever name they may be called, whether wagon dwellers, or those who are called homeless, or herdsmen who dwell in tents, among whom prayers and thanksgivings are not offered to God, the creator of all things, in the name of the crucified Jesus. So what was true 2,000 years ago is still true today. He remains with us, working through the church, and dwelling with us in the real presence of the Eucharist. Through the covenantal meal of the New Testament, Mass, we become participants in the perfect sacrifice of Christ that was spoken of in Hebrews 10. I'm going to have a reading from Hebrews 10, 12 to 16. But this one offered one sacrifice for sins and took his seat forever at the right hand of God. Now he waits until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has made perfect forever those who are being consecrated. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, This is the covenant I will establish with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them upon their minds. The major source of disunity is the denial of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the very thing that was supposed to be the source of our unity. And many don't believe that what Christ did on the cross is represented at Mass. So we say what Christ did on the cross is represented at Mass. Or they don't believe that, what, that Christ is really present in the Eucharist. But at the heart of the Protestant disagreement with Catholics is the denial that Christ established one visible church 
under the authority of Peter, the first pope. The church that was charged by Christ with offering sacrifice, he told them, do this in memory of me. And that church, which has been led by the successors of Peter and others throughout its history. What we're going to see in this lecture is that disagreement and denial is unfounded because we can demonstrate that the Catholic position has been the position of Christians from the beginning. So we're going to look at some of these some of these subjects. The first one is the idea that this Mass is a sacrifice. Sometime around year 50, a document called the Didache was written, and it gives us a clear description of what the early Christian liturgy was like. You can find it on the internet. It's not very long. Over and over, the Didache uses the word sacrifice, saying that the Mass is this sacrifice that was spoken of by the Lord. The Didache also quotes very sacrificial language from the prophet of Malachi. Quote, this is from Malachi, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations, and in every place incense is offered to my name, and a pure offering, sacrifice, for my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And this passage is part of the third Eucharistic prayer that we heard at Mass, so it might be a little familiar. About 50 years after the Didache was written, St. Ignatius of Antioch refers to the church as the place of sacrifice. St. John Chrysostom likewise looked little doubt about exactly what is happening in Mass. He even takes it one step further, reminding us that at Mass, we're not just participating in the one sacrifice of the cross, we're also present in the liturgy of heaven. He says, For when you see the Lord sacrificed and laid upon the altar, and the priest standing and praying over the victim, and all the worshippers empurpled with the precious blood, can you then think that you are still among men standing on earth? And this is important because it is through the sacrifice of the Mass that we become one body in Christ, as Paul has said. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17. The cup of blessing that is love. Is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the participation in the body of Christ? Because the love of bread is one. We eat so many of one body, for we all partake, partake of the one love. So Christ prayed for unity of all believers, and that unity comes about through his body offered for us in the sacrifice of the Mass. The Eucharist is the source of our unity. And this truth is at the heart of why there is only one church established by Jesus Christ. It's for this reason Christ instituted the sacrament of holy orders at the Last Supper. Just as priests offered sacrifice to God under the Old Covenant, Christ instituted a new priesthood to celebrate the sacrifice of the New Covenant. Now, of course, Christ is the only perfect and true priest, holy, blameless, Unstained, who offers the perfect offering, according to Hebrews, but there also has to be a continuation of his covenant. He needed others to share in the perfect priesthood. He needed successors, and it's exactly what Jesus intended and what he did, again, when he told his apostles to do this in memory of me. St. Cyprian of Carthage, a third century father, spoke of this sharing in the priesthood of Christ. He wrote, For if Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, is himself the chief priest of God the Father, 
and has first offered himself a sacrifice to the Father, and has commanded this be done in commemoration of himself, certainly that priest who imitates that which Christ did truly discharges the office of Christ, and he then offers a true and full sacrifice in the church to God the Father when he proceeds to offer it according to what he sees Christ himself to have offered. Cyprian says the priest is imitating Christ. He is offering what Christ offered. The church teaches that a priest acts in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, when they celebrate the sacraments. They are acting in Christ and through Christ, and they're acting by the authority of Christ. That's why the validity of the sacrament doesn't depend on the holiness of the priest. St. Augustine famously said, when Peter baptizes, it is Christ who baptizes. When Judas baptizes, it is Christ who baptizes. Some people claim that Catholics disobey a direct order from Christ when we continue the tradition of calling our priest father. So what Jesus was doing when he said, call no man father, he was warning us about teachers and leaders who are pushing their own message are loading their authority over others. Those who set themselves up as a father, father figure, independent of the one true father. Just like today, in Jesus' time, a cult of personality often formed around popular teachers and their schools of thought. Jesus warned against this exaltation of the individual. He reminded us that the role of his disciples was not to hand on their own teaching, but to hand on his teaching. Scripture is clear, we have only one teacher, and that is Christ. But Christ doesn't act alone. From the beginning, he's involved others in his work. First, he calls his apostles, granting them his mission and authority, and then they call others, and so it continues to today. They knew, they knew that succession was part of the plan and vital to Christ's mission. For example, after Judas betrays Jesus and commits suicide, Peter announces the need to replace him with someone else. Quoting Psalm 109, he declares, Let his office let another take, Acts 120. So the Greek term for office used here was understood to refer to the office of bishop, the episcopate. It is also found in 1 Timothy 3.1, which says, The saying is sure, if anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. There's the case of Peter himself. Jesus singles Peter out from the rest of the apostles in Matthew. I'll read from Matthew 16, 18 to 19. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there are three things to know from this passage. First, Peter gets a new name, like other important figures in salvation history, such as Abraham and Jacob. And his new identity is that of the rock upon which Christ will build his church. Second, he's given the keys to the kingdom with the authority to bind and loose, an authority the other's disciples will only receive later. And this office that Christ established in Peter was meant to be passed on. Again, we saw that in Acts with the election of Matthias to replace Judas. This is the way the Catholic Church understands the scripture teaching regarding the special authority of Peter. 
and the need for the authority of all the apostles to be passed on. Now, Protestants don't see it that way, but the early church fathers did. And as the 19th century Catholic convert, blessed John Henry Newman famously stated, to be deep in history, to know the fathers, is to cease to be Protestant. So let's take a look at what some of the, these early church fathers have to say about this. Cyprian recognizes that faithfulness to the church means faithfulness to the authority of Peter, saying, Indeed, the others were that also which Peter was, they were all together, but a primacy is given to Peter, whereby it is made clear that there is but one church and one chair. If someone does not hold fast to this unity of Peter, can he imagine that he holds the faith? If he should desert the chair of Peter upon whom the church was built, can he be confident that he is in the church and that he has the truth? St. Clement of Alexandria agrees. He declares the blessed Peter the chosen, the preeminent, the first among the disciples for whom alone with himself the Savior paid the tribute, Matthew 17:27, quickly grasped and understood their meaning. And what does he say? Behold, we have left all and have followed you. And this understanding of the primacy of Peter is echoed by other church fathers, Ambrose of Milan, Cyril of Jerusalem, Jerome, St. Augustine, and others. And this primacy that didn't end with Peter, but was passed down to the subsequent popes. We already saw the idea of succession when, when Jesus gave the Peter the keys to the kingdom. The keys were meant to be passed on. And when Peter declares that Judas' office needed to be filled, well, we can see other examples of succession as well in Paul's letter to Timothy. We're going to have a reading from 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me before many witnesses, entrust to the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What you hear from me, claim to the, to the others. Earlier in 2 Timothy, we hear how Paul personally appointed Timothy to follow after him. And how did he do this? By the laying on of hands. So we see this idea of laying on of hands in other places with regard to the sacrament of holy orders. And the church, early church fathers saw the same thing. In fact, they discussed how this appointing, ordination, and succession needed to be in an orderly process. In other words, you just couldn't go out and start your own church whenever you felt like it. As a quick aside, we talked about some of the non-Catholic priesthood. We talked about the Anglican and Episcopal priests. The Anglican denomination was formed in England under King Henry VIII, and he broke from the church. That was in like 1500s or so. So that's the Anglican denomination. And when he broke from the Pope, the apostolic link was broken. So their priesthood is not a valid priesthood. You have to have a valid priesthood to consecrate the Eucharist. It comes down to when they say this is the body, this is the blood, is it? Do they have the power to do that? And even though they say, we, we, would, we would not recognize their priesthood as being valid. Uh, the Episcopal Church is a, a later offshoot out of the Anglicans. It's the American version. So there's some history when, uh, when the Anglican Church came to America, there was some controversy, as usual. So they became independent of the Anglican Church. They carried many of the same beliefs. There's some slight differences. Their theology, and same with their priesthood, so we wouldn't recognize their priesthood because the Anglican priesthood was not considered valid. But their theology is very similar to Catholic theology. This is why when Anglicans or Episcopalians 
come into the church and if they're a priest in their denomination, it's not as difficult to ordain them because they don't have to go through all the formation to become a Catholic priest. They can go through much less of a formation because they have many of the beliefs that we have. And then they're ordained and and become Catholic priests. So that's how that happens. The other group is the Orthodox, like the Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox. So they don't, they're not in communion with the Pope, but their apostolic succession, priestly apostolic succession, is accepted by the Church. So when, when they celebrate the sacraments, they're recognized as, have, as being valid priests and they're being valid sacraments. Okay, St. Clement of Rome, and he was the fourth Pope, wrote a letter to the Church of Corinth. Corinth is in Greece. And he said, The apostles preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done this so from God. Christ, therefore, was sent forth by God and the apostles by Christ. Both these appointments, then, were made in an orderly way, according to the will of God. Having, therefore, received their, their orders with full assurance of the Holy Spirit, they went forth proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, and thus preaching through the countries and cities they appointed the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons. Again, this idea of succession. This orderly process Clement identifies as important. If we are called to hold to the traditions and truth that the apostles passed on, then there must be a process to faithfully pass on what they said. Otherwise, how can we be sure that what we are hearing is the truth? In the second century, St. Ignatius of Antioch said, Allow nothing whatever to exist among you that would give rise to divisions. In the same way as the Lord was wholly one with the Father and never acted independently of him, either in person or through the apostles, so you yourself must never act independent of your bishop and the clergy. St. Ignatius continues, I have my refuge in the gospel and in the flesh of Jesus and the apostles as a presbytery of the church. Ignatius was confident he possessed the true gospel because of the church. He knew, as St. Paul did, that the church is the pillar and bulwark of the, of the truth. Scripture and tradition make it clear. If you want to know the truth, you must know the church. Now, even back then, in the times of the early church, not everyone followed this, followed this wisdom. There were heretics who didn't accept the church as authoritative. And St. Irenaeus calls out the Gnostic heretics as an example for not accepting the authority of the Church of Rome, saying, That tradition derived from the apostles of the very great and very ancient and universally known Church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, is that which comes down to our time by means of the successions of bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church, according to the Roman church, church in Rome, on account of its preeminent authority. That is, the faithful everywhere, inasmuch as the apostolic tradition has been preserved continuously by faithful men everywhere. And then he proves his point by listing his successors. The blessed apostles, then, having founded and built up the church, committed it into the hands of Linus. He was the second pope, the office of the episcopate. To him succeeded Anacletus, and after him, in the third place, from the apostles Clement. This man, as he had seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them, might be said to have the preaching of the apostles still echoing in his ears 
and their traditions before his eyes. Then St. Irenaeus proceeded to list the next eight popes after Clement, which brought him to his present day. He concluded by saying, In this order and by this succession, the, the ecclesiastical tradition of the apostles and the preaching of the truth have come down to us. And this is most abundant proof that there is one and the same vivifying faith, which has been preserved in the church from the apostles until now and handed down the truth. How do the Christians know they possess the truth? Over and over we hear it's because the truth has been preserved in the, in the church. The universal church, founded and organized at Rome, is considered preeminent by Irenaeus. Likewise, the bishop of Rome has a pride of place that gives him authority over the whole church. St. Clement of Rome, the fourth pope, agrees. He wrote in his letter to Corinth, speaks with authority to Christians in faraway Greece, Corinth was in Greece, the people of Corinth had turned to Rome to settle a dispute. And Clement answers them with authority. He says, But should any disobey what has been said by God through us, let them understand that they will entangle themselves in transgression and no small danger. Ignatius of Antioch identifies Rome as a central authority as well. He refers to the church which is beloved and enlightened by the will of him that willeth all things which are according to the love of Jesus Christ our God which also presides in the place of the region of the Romans in Rome worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of highest happiness, worthy of praise, worthy of attaining her every desire, worthy of being deemed holy and which presides over love history leaves little doubt the Church has always recognized that the Bishop of Rome, as a successor to St. Peter, holds preeminent authority. Following our first Pope, some of the greatest figures in the history of Christianity have sat in this chair of Peter, as St. Cyprian calls it. Two of these great Popes and Fathers were actually known as St. Leo the Great and St. Gregory the Great. St. Leo was elected Pope in 440 and reigned for 21 years. Leo's reign took place during a period marred by numerous heresies. Nestorianism, for example, held that Christ's human and divine natures were so distinct that they represented two distinct persons. Going in the other direction, the Monophysites argued that Christ had only one nature uniquely combining his humanity and divinity. Pope Leo had to correct this with the truth of who Christ really is. And in his letter, known as the Tome of Leo, he clarified that Jesus has two natures, one human, one divine, that acted in concert with one another in one divine person. One person, two natures. Human nature, divine nature, one person. Unfortunately, that did not end the controversy. So Pope Leo convened a council at Chalcedon in 451. There... Leo's letter was read aloud. Recognizing his apostolic authority, the bishops at that council exclaimed, This is the faith of the fathers. This is the faith of the apostles. So we all believe. Thus the orthodox believe. Anathema to him who does not believe this. Peter has spoken thus through Leo. Having demonstrated his courage in the face of heresy, Leo now showed he was fearless in the face of barbarians as well. When Attila the Hun threatened to sack Rome in 452, Leo went out to the gates of Rome to meet him face to face. 
We don't know exactly what happened at the meeting, but it must have been impressive because Attila turned around and left. Three years later, Pope Leo confronted the Vandals in the same manner when they showed up at Rome. His bravery won him only moderate success this time. Living up to their name, the Vandals sacked Rome but didn't burn it down. However, by this time, Rome's secular decline was well underway. And that decline was a very rapid decline. In 476, the last Roman emperor of the West was deposed and no one replaced him. Then in 546, the Ostrogoths entered Rome. They plundered the city and then starved its inhabitants. By the time they were done, the last remnants of Roman civilization, save travel, communication, and trade, had disappeared. And in this state of disorder, someone was needed to fill the power vacuum to take place of the imperial Roman government. Another great man was needed, and that man was Gregory the Great. Born into a wealthy Roman family, Gregory was a smart, well-educated man who made a name for himself in the civil sphere. At one point, he was even prefect of Rome, which is like being a mayor. Eventually, though, he gave up his worldly success, entered the religious life, and turned his home into a monastery. He built more monasteries and was later ordained and then served the church as a diplomat. In 590, Gregory became Pope and reigned as successor to Peter for 14 years. In addition to restoring civil order through the institution of the church, Gregory showed his greatness by reforming the clergy and ending some liturgical abuses of the time. He is also the initial promoter of the Gregorian chant which bears his name. In his epistle 17, Gregory stated that we all together need to follow the guidelines of our Holy Fathers, doing nothing adversarial, but unanimous in every pious aim we must, with the Lord's help, obey the holy and apostolic constitutions. He also had some very strong words for those who were critical of bishops, and he uses the example of David and Saul in one of his letters. He said, if David, the most righteous king, did not presume to lay his hand on Saul, who was apparently already rejected by God, how much more should everyone be careful not to lay the hand of insults, abuse, indiscretion, or dishonor on the Lord's anointed, since harnessing and insulting them inevitably touches Christ, whom they represent in the church. Like other good fathers, the fathers of the church wanted to keep their family from tearing itself apart. The fathers knew oneness, familial unity, is maintained through the Eucharist. It happens through the priesthood that Christ instituted in the midst of his prayer in John 17, then united under one head, the Holy Father, having one source Christ, we are all nourished from the same Eucharistic table. Receiving the body and blood of Christ in Holy Communion not only symbolizes our communion with God and His Church, it affects or makes possible that communion. If we want to know the truth of Christ, we have to listen to those He entrusted with the message, the apostles and their successors. As St. Irenaeus said, the Church, having received this preaching and this faith, although scattered throughout the whole world, yet as if occupying but one house, carefully preserves it. She proclaims the doctrine, teaches them, and hands them on, hands them down, with perfect harmony, as if she possessed only one mouth. Jesus prayed we would all be one, so he formed one church to make us one body through the Eucharist. The fathers proclaimed this truth, knowing that there is only one Lord, one faith, 
one baptism. In our next session, we'll move on more deeply into the Father's view and usage of God's masterworks, which, are, which we know as the sacraments, and we'll also examine some of the heresies in the early church. All right, so why don't we say in our Father, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the Father and the Son. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.